the reality of it would be not that you've captured the state, but that the state has captured you. Right, and that's why smashing the state is so important. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll go through them. So, it is the Catrone Zone again with our star, the last Marxist, Chris Catrone. Welcome back. It's a, another Friday where you're on the Sublation Media channel. Um, this time around, we're going to be talking about an essay uh, from your second book, which will be coming out uh, either this year or early in 2024, um, entitled Marxism and Politics. The essay that we're going to talk about is is uh, Lenin's liberalism. And I am very interested in talking about Lenin's liberalism because um, when I uh, get attacked online these days, uh, which is rarer because I've been kicked off Twitter, oh boy. But when, I, <laughs> when I do get attacked online on Facebook, it's, I'm, I'm often called a naive liberal. Uh, uh -huh. So, so um, I wanted to ask you, uh, why did you titled your essay Lenin's Liberalism and how was Lenin any kind of liberal? Okay, so this essay is from back in 2011. It's before mm -hmm. the um, Occupy Wall Street uh, event had occurred. So it was prepared for the Left Forum in New York in the spring of 2011. Mm -hmm. And Platypus had held a panel discussion with Lars Lee, uh, Paul LeBlanc, who was a longtime Trotskyist, first associated with Solidarity and then joining the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, mm -hmm. and myself uh, discussing, you know, Lenin's Marxism, basically. And um, I decided to make my intervention um, at a very kind of basic level, um, namely, what are some sort of fundamental misconceptions or wrong assumptions that people have starting out when approaching Lenin. Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess I could be, there are two catchphrases that could be associated with my research. One is Adorno's Leninism, the title of another essay in the, in the book. And the, uh, the other is Lenin's liberalism. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, basically, I had been trained in a kind of Trotskyist uh, interpretation of Lenin, um, orthodox Trotskyist interpretation of Lenin, but also, you know, a rather sophisticated version of, of Trotskyism by the Spartacist League. And there had been some kind of catchphrases of theirs in their work. They wrote a pamphlet called Lenin and the Vanguard Party in the 70s um, that, you know, always stayed with me, that, that stood out for me and that have been abiding kind of ideas. Um, and, you know, one is that uh, Lenin considered a split in the workers' movement for socialism to, pre to be a precondition for revolution. Hmm. And the other, of course, was that Lenin was a Kautskyan Marxist of the Second International. Right? Mm -hmm. So those two things would appear to contradict each other. Namely, um, Babel and Kautsky in the Social Democratic Party of Germany famously had a conception of the party of the whole class, and by which they meant that not that the entire working class would join the Socialist Party, but rather that um, there should be a party that represents the interests of the entire working class. 
and that is not just the entire working class of a country, but the world's working class. So the one class, one party idea, which is that there's a unified interest of the workers of the world to overthrow capitalism and pursue socialism. Um, and because of that, there should only be one political party of that tendency. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, that's a claim. It's a political claim for a party to make to say we represent the world historic interests of the working class in capitalism. Mm -hmm. But that's a contestable claim. And it's not only a contestable claim in terms of like theory, but in terms of politics. And indeed, the socialist movement from the very beginning had been divided. Um, and Marx himself, when he arrived on the scene in the 1840s, faced a divided uh, socialist or communist movement. They use those terms kind of interchangeably back then. Mm -hmm. And he, as a Hegelian, sought to understand the nature and character of those divisions and the, the totality or the unity of those divisions, right? So to sort of understand them as not just sort of separate things, but as intrinsically related in their opposition and, you know, to see them as expressions of contradiction. So the idea is that capitalism is a self-contradictory society and the struggle to overcome it is going to be a self-contradictory process. And an expression of that self-contradiction is going to be found in political differences among socialists. So the idea is, did, was that abandoned? Because, of course, you know, in 2011, for us today in 2023, or really any time going back into the, you know, mid-20th century, um, we are saddled with this specter of the totalitarian party state of the Soviet Union right, the one-party state. And that looks like, oh, is that what Marxism wanted? Is that, is that Marxism right there? Like, is that, is that what Kautsky wanted? Is also. that what Kautsky wanted? That's right. Is that what Babel and Kautsky wanted? Um, is that what Marx and Engels wanted? And, you know, it's kind of like, well, yes and no. <laughs> Meaning that they did struggle for um, proletarian socialist unity, which is a little bit different from working class unity, right? So working class unity is a different kind of matter. That would be a matter of like collective bargaining, both at a local and a, and a kind of a broader societal level. Right. Solidarity but, amongst striking workers. Yes. That kind of thing. Support. Right. And so one of the things that they observed, you know, um, Marx and Engels, but also their followers like Kautsky and Lenin, is that they understood that there was going to be a broader workers' movement that would not be entirely socialist. In other words, um, even though in various countries the labor unions were associated with the Socialist Party, they were not... Uh, to be a member of the union as a worker did not mean that you had to be a member of the Socialist Party. So there was a non-identity of the working class's own collective self-organization and the Socialist Party. And indeed, of course, there have been competing unions, historically. Um, and, you know, like I said, there have been competing socialist tendencies and indeed potentially competing socialist parties. So what we have is the specter of the party state, the kind of totalitarian state that seems to dominate everything. But then before that, 
leading up to that, it looks like a Marxist kind of ideological hegemony over the workers' movement in Europe, right? So in a place like Germany in particular, um, the socialists did uh, predominate and did have an ideological leadership role in the labor unions, even if the unions were independent of the Socialist Party. So they, they were effectively controlled by the Social Democratic Party. Um, and again, this would fly in the face of liberalism conventionally understood. Um, I think that a, a kind of pithy definition of liberalism is political pluralism. Mm -hmm. That would be the most immediate like association that people have. I would go deeper, though, and say it's not just political pluralism, but it's also the non-identity of state and society, of civil society in the state. So classical liberalism, the, the observation by people like Hegel, mm -hmm. the non-identity of state and society, indeed their antithesis, and also someone like Benjamin Constant, who's a thinker in the aftermath of the French Revolution. He's an, asso he's an associate of Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, and he's someone who wrote a very famous essay called Liberty of the Ancients Compared with That of the Moderns, in which he distinguished political liberty and civil liberty. So political liberty is your right to participate in the state, democracy, and civil liberty is your rights against the state, or civil society's rights against the state, which the ancients didn't know, according to Constant, but the moderns need. In other words, modern society actually requires the civil liberty to function. Mm -hmm. It requires civil social freedom to function. So in, in, the, in the event that I presented this piece at the Left Forum in New York with Lars Lee and Paul LeBlanc, they, of course, were, you know, the way I intended, rubbed the wrong way by this very idea of Lenin's liberalism. And they said, well, Lenin wasn't a liberal, but he did favor political liberty. And I thought, okay, well, what does that mean? Because, again, does that mean right to participate in the state? They kind of turned it into a matter of democracy. Mm. But there's a tension between liberalism and democracy. What about the rights of minorities against the majority? Mm -hmm. What about the right of the individual against everyone else? Mm -hmm. um, what about the right of voluntary civil social association against the state and against the law, indeed? Right, So the law can't dictate how we can associate in society. It well, it can, of, but on, only on certain bases. Like, you know, you can't conspire to commit a crime. You can't, you can't associate in order to perpetrate an act of fraud or something like that. Or, but well, you, can, okay. you can associate you can. as long as – go ahead. You can, but you might be charged with a crime. So this right. is another point, which is to say that not all crimes are prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Not all crimes are prosecuted, and that's a right, too. Like, why do we elect prosecutors in the United States? Because we do. Now, of course, we, there's, there's now a whole, you know, what we're seeing now in the, in the news is that there's a whole unelected staff of federal prosecutors, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people who are nominally uh, appointed, but really they're just there, they're kind of, career lawyers and for the federal government, and then the parties just choose who to put in the position. Um, but, you know, normally, like at a municipal level, at a local level, we elect district attorneys, or here in Illinois, they're called state's attorneys. We elect um, a state attorney general. 
and we elect a president at the federal level who's going to nominate his choice for attorney general. And nominally, therefore, there is civilian control over the police, over law enforcement through that elected position. Right. So and we can evaluate prosecutors in that position based on their performance. We can say, are they enforcing the laws that we want to enforce? Because you can't enforce all the laws all the time. You can't. You have to make choices. And that was understood in bourgeois thought, in classical liberalism, as um, a kind of political matter. In other words, it's a, the prosecutorial discretion is a political matter. And, you know, again, they make judgments, right? And those judgments are both legal and political. They're meant to be, right? It's meant to be in a zone of political contestation. So that... You know, again, we, we tend to very naively forget these things, like very easily forget these things, like just basic facts of life in society. So a lot of crimes are not, you know, uh, prosecuted. A lot of laws are not enforced. And I, might, of, I muted myself. Can I go back to your non-identity? Yeah, co- go ahead. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. So, um, of course, that's an Adorno word, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I wanted to ask yeah. about. Non-identity, when I've read Adorno, seems to gesture towards the future. Uh, uh-huh. There's a non-identity uh, basically within our bourgeois society of the, of the promises of the of bourgeois right realized, mm-hmm. um, is how I think of it. And, mm-hmm. But you're talking about um, the way in which a society and the society and the state, the civil society and the state are not uh, the same. They're... they're in opposition, but they're, but they're not, they both exist in this moment. They're not, that's right. And they're not unrelated. They're not unrelated. Right. Right. And non-identity that we might project into the future of the bourgeois society, um, isn't unrelated to the reality of actually existing identity, right. Either. So, um, so I just, but, uh, but uh, to put it in concrete terms, uh, to put it in concrete terms, at the time of Lenin, what he was talking about is the right of the, of, of the working class to exist within civil society, to associate on its own terms, um, outside of the domain of the state or the party, right? And that and the, so that they were they were free uh, of state coercion uh, or party discipline as workers. But if they became socialists and joined the party, which is what you would want to mm-hmm. in order to create a revolutionary moment then they would be subject to uh the identity of the party the discipline of, of the party the party discipline right yeah but the, but their unions wouldn't be even the then be. that's right that's right. right so i mean yeah so non-identity is tricky because there's the sort of you know there are these different things but then the question is how are they related and then the question is um dialectics and contradiction Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about is um, non-identity as a as a function of history. That in a sense, everything it's Hegel. A is not equal to A, right? Because nothing is identical with itself because it is in a constant process of movement and change. Okay. So again, the way Hegel understood this was that that movement and change appears in the form of contradiction. So something that, um, you know, exists comes to contradict itself 
and then transforms itself in and through that self-contradiction. And of course, this is, you know, what Hegel thought of in terms of the state and society. So he had, you know, he did, Hegel has these funny ideas. Mm-hmm. The state is the truth of society, and society is the truth of the state, by which he meant the state contradicts society and society contradicts the state. So it's very different from a kind of normal logical or Aristotelian notion of contradiction. In other words, that the truth of something is in it, it contradicting it. <laughs> so again, it's not just different things, but it's actually contradictory things that suggest a process of change and transformation, and etc. So society changes itself, according to Hegel, precisely through society's non-identity with itself in the form of its non-identity with the state, its non-identity with the law, right? And so, and also the law changes as a function of its non-identity with society, etc. So again, the basic point is that, um, you know, we might have this idea that like society is established by the law, but no, right? It looked at historically, uh, the law is established by society. In other words, society comes before the law. So again, for Marx, social relations, right? And the whole point of the problem of capitalism and the struggle for socialism and overcoming capitalism is that there's a self-contradictory social relation in capitalism. And you can see that in terms of like, I don't know, the capitalist mode of production being a contradiction between bourgeois social relations and industrial forces of production. Mm. And so what that means is that actually, uh, the social relations are in contrast to their potential, you know, and, and you could say the legal, juridical, constitutional framework of bourgeois right, bourgeois law, to use like a, a Hegelian term, is in contradiction with the, uh, the actuality of society, by which is meant not its existence, but its potential, right? And so this is why Bourgeois social relations are a fetter on production, according to Marx. And that's not just the private property of the capitalists. It's actually labor. The social relations of labor are a fetter on the possibility of social production in the industrial era. Right. right. So science and technology go beyond the ability to appropriate their production through the rights of labor. Right. Right. Um, so... This is, I, I, you know, really the core, and it's like Kautsky knew that, mm-hmm. Abel knew that, Lenin knew that, Rosa Luxemburg knew that, Trotsky knew it, everybody knew it, Edward Bernstein knew it, everybody knew it. All Marxists, like, this is a basic, basic, basic thing that has become super obscure now. Super yeah, well, why, why, why did this become so obscure? That was my next question. It's like, how did Lenin's liberalism become obscured? How did this fact that, um, the way I think of it is that the... Uh, rights of labor and the the way that the working class dis, dis, disposes of its labor power um, freely uh, contradicts you know comes back on it on the, on the working class and, and mm-hmm. restrains them. How did the, all of that basic Marxist I, ideology get lost after Lenin? Well, uh, we could say the dialectic was lost, meaning that. Um, you know, how did Marxism get tailored to fit 
the Soviet Union. Because it did. Mm -hmm. um, it basically got tailored to fit the Soviet Union by turning into a matter of industrialization. Right? So the idea is that bourgeois social relations are reactionary. They, they point backwards. They're kind of retrograde. And the industrial forces point forward. And so therefore, socialism is about the, in, the industrial forces of production. So it's about taking the side of industry against bourgeois property, including the most basic form of bourgeois property, which is labor as a commodity, meaning I own my labor as a worker. I can freely right. dispose of my labor as a worker. It's my property. What I make with it is my property, actually. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and if I make something in cooperation with others, then I at least have property rights to my portion of my contribution to that. Right. Right. I mean, and, that cannot obtain. Um, in industrial production. In industrial production or under conditions of exchange based on value. As way it I can obtain and it did obtain. This is, uh, you know, again, something that we've. Um, we debated. We've We've butt our heads against because yeah. I would say that, um, you know, bourgeois society did exist. It's, and, and not only did it exist, but it continues to exist. In other words, capitalism is still reconstituted on the basis of the validity of exchange. Right? So, in other words, the exchange is both valid and invalid. Right. It's both true and false. In other words, exchange, the exchange of labor, you know, according to the, you know, value of it as a commodity still is going on. And not only is it still going on, but it's still freeing people around the world and it's still revolutionizing production. It's still driving history. So again, it's it, the, the undialectical view is that it belongs to the past and is some kind of break on the present, whereas the industrial forces are moving us along. Well, no, actually not, right? Um, it, the bourgeois social relations are also pushing us forward and the existing form of science and technology and its application and production is also holding us back. Sure. I, I, I agree with that. Right? We, we, I mean, I don't want to get, maybe in the parrot room, we can get but into the weeds a bit. Because if you look at it, I think that socialism is associated with statism. It's mm. associated with a kind of technocracy. It's in, associated with industrial policy. So it's kind of like, okay, Trump has an industrial policy. Oh, does that mean he's not a, a liberal anymore? <laughs> right? Like this kind of thing. And uh, he must be a fascist because he's not a socialist. So therefore he must be a fascist. It's like, uh, no, having an industrial policy doesn't make you a socialist or a fascist. <laughs> right? So right. capitalist politics, you know, has had industrial policy from the beginning. Right. So it's not like, you know, it's not like neoliberalism is just pure laissez faire. Of course not. No. Give me a break. Right. But then the idea is like, oh, they're just letting the market and they're letting the capitalists and they're letting the corporations just do what they want all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's like, you know, and the, the Democrats are there to say, oh, well, shouldn't we regulate things a little bit like you're not allowed to pollute and you're not allowed to do this and not allowed to do that as if there isn't like a positive industrial policy not only in a place like China today or in the European Union, in social democracies or in communism, but in like free market, blah, UK and the United States. So again, there is this idea that like socialism 
is about like democratic control over industrial policy because that's progressive. Mm-hmm. Whereas market, you know, free market, private property competition, that's regressive. Mm-hmm. Not so fast, children. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> right? Can, I tell, can I tell you briefly how yeah. I think about that? And then I want to give you most of the air here. But no, go ahead. Um, so the way I think about that is that the state run industrial you know, uh, sector, let's say, in a, in a so-called socialist state, is not able to, uh, to transform the social relations that set up production. Um, so that means that even though there isn't this, it's supposedly not being mediated by a free market, it's still being mediated by competition between sectors and by this socially necessary labor time that gives commodities their value. Um, and that, that competition and worse than the competition, um, the contradiction that arises from that form of, of, uh, production will emerge somewhere one of the ways that emerges is in a tendency for the rate of profit to decline i'm big into that and that that means that rather than having individual sectors that are held in private hands uh go bankrupt or have economic problems you'll have whole nations that have economic problems when you have it centralized in that way Um, yeah global depression um, also a massive amount of concentration and financialization. All of that comes even with and through state capitalism or, or state. It's an uh, obscure policy. thing though, right? It's a very obscure thing. And I guess it's a controversial claim to say that the East Bloc, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe suffered economic stagnation at the around the same time that the West also suffered economic stagnation. And then it's like, well, how and why did that happen? And you'll have like pro-capitalist people who will say, well, you know, socialism is stagnant. Right. Mm-hmm. And the only dynamism that existed in the Soviet Union was through its rapid industrialization. And once that was completed, then it stagnated. And somehow it stagnated worse than the West, because after all, the Soviet Union fell and the West did not. Right. And this kind of thing. And no, no, I mean, we have to keep it very basic. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very basic. Yeah. Right. Just like, what are we talking about here? You know, what's the problem with capitalism and what's the working class's place? Well, let me just say problem? one other thing is a dream of the statists who actually take up the need to transform social relations is that you can have the state step in and say, OK, we're not going to uh, we're going to wipe out the market. So we're not going to have things exchange based on the amount of time they take to produce. But instead, we're going to have uh, distribution rationally managed based on some other metric, calories, energy needs, something like that. And it's kind of technocratic uh, status mm-hmm. solution. And that's what people dream of when they think of a planned economy, if they're thinking deeply, I, I, I think. And Right. So, again, what that does is it eliminates freedom. It turns humans into animals in a habit trail. Right, you know, uh, which is, I guess, a dated reference at this point. That's when you have hamsters in these little plastic tubes. Yeah, right, right, right. yeah, yeah. Right. So um, I don't know if if children have that anymore. <laughs> that might be cruelty to animals. My kids did. 
It yeah. certainly is cruelty to animals, but it's also no. They know, love it. Come on, they get to run it's, around. It's better than being in a laboratory subject to Dr. Fauci's experiments. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, so basically, you know, again, what is Lenin's vision? And his vision is the same as the Second International. And what was the Second International's vision? Right? What is supposed to happen in the dictatorship of the proletariat? Right? What's what is this about? Is it nationalization of production so you mentioned like the state sector right is it about like the state sector versus the private sector what about the market all of these things it seems like a total mystery doesn't it however if we unpack it if we go back to what really like the dictatorship of the proletariat is supposed to be mm-hmm. it's supposed to be political and it's not syndicalism first of all It's not syndicalism. So it's not like workers control at the point of production and, and, you know, economic democracy understood as a kind of syndicalism, that all the workers at Whole Foods get together and decide on the policy of this this franchise, this store at the Whole Foods. That is not socialism, right? No. And also that, that was not necessarily missing in the East. That was there, by the way, Mm -hmm. um, more or less. Um, And so, you know, they nominally observed these kinds of rights, you know, and you could say that highly unionized shops, highly unionized points of production, there's a great deal of worker input democratically in the production process, right? So it's not about that. It's about really a political regime, and it's a political regime that's going to favor the rights of workers against the rights of capital, in a way that now we have a political regime that favors the rights of capital against the rights of labor, but also, you know, kind of tries to manage those things, right? So, mm-hmm. again, the, the controversial aspect of Marxism is always the dictatorship of the proletariat. What is it supposed to be? Is it the victory of the coordinator class, according to the Michael Albert, Paracon, or Noam Chomsky, or anarchists, or left communists? It's, but the victory of the coordinator class, the intelligentsia, which is going to be the dictator over the proletariat and is now going to sort of technocratically dictate what the workers do. Oh, well, as a- they're looking at these statists that emerge, you know, and that's not unfair. And, and from- it's not unfair. It's a valid, like, it's a, I should say not valid. It's a plausible. Right. Right. Explanation of what happened. Um, you know, I just, you know, I think that we're at a place historically where the Soviet experience is simply not a model. It's not a model in any respect, not in the first few years of the revolution when it's like civil war and war communism and they're Mm -hmm. still trying to get like world revolution going and, you know, there's the actual prospect of a revolution in Germany, which would mean a revolution throughout Europe, Mm -hmm. hypothetically. Um, and so look, we look at that, then we look at like the new economic policy, you know, which is allows a lot of private capital accumulation and foreign capital investment and market relations. And then you get the five-year plan that comes with the Great Depression and you get like forced collectivization of agriculture, the liquidation of kulaks as a class and crash industrialization in a way that they were not aiming for in the NEP, it's also not what they're aiming for in war communism. So war communism was a kind of military discipline applied to existing industry. Mm -hmm. NEP was, you know, allowing for a kind of capitalistic 
development, if we, if you will, under the dictatorship of the proletariat, and then uh, crash industrialization, forced collectivization of agriculture, and then that was declared by Stalin to be, mean the achievement of socialism. Right. So the first five-year plan went very successfully, supposedly, and at the end of it, they achieved socialism. Okay. Yeah. So, like, there's a lot of twists and turns in that. Yeah. It, and, and, you know, in a sense, it's, it's kind of all problematic as models, right? Um, and yet this is seemingly what we have because it's the only time that Marxists ever took power. And so what do we make of it, right? And so I would just say it's, it's a very contradictory phenomenon one should have a critical and dialectical attitude to what happened in the Soviet Union. And there's also a distinction, a non-identity to be observed, even a contradiction to be observed between the official ideology, Marxism, and the social reality of the country mm-hmm. and the pursuit of socialism in that one country, um, you know, just very realistically. And so, you know, the Stalinists, you know, and I know that that's a controversial term, well, the communists, let's just call them that. Mm-hmm. did sort of treat themselves as at war with society, meaning they regarded society as spontaneously regenerating capitalism mm-hmm. and that the dictatorship of the proletariat is some kind of safeguard against the reproduction of capitalism. So you overthrow capitalism, boom, and then you have to be on guard against its reappearance until some fine day when there are no longer any social wellsprings of the recrudescence of capitalism. Okay, so if we back it up, we back it up to pre-1917, and, you know, Lenin's perspective through the end of his life in the, you know, seven years of the revolution that he lived through, um, well, no, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat does not abolish capitalism. They never thought that. It does mm-hmm. not. There's the preservation of bourgeois right, and therefore bourgeois right in the context of industrial production, and therefore the contradiction of capitalism remains, namely capitalism remains, because from a Marxist perspective, it's a contradiction. So again, it's a political regime, the dictatorship of the proletariat, that's supposed to be more optimal conditions at both a state level and at a civil social level for working through the contradiction of capitalism that the ordinary capitalist state that we have now constantly defers and shunts into domains, right? Tries to avoid the contradiction, right? So I, I want to say something that, that this is, you know, this is my old MHI training yep. or, you know, um, so my, I had written this down before we even talked. My former guru, Andrew Kleiman used to argue, and I think he probably still does, mm-hmm. um, against the need for a transitional period on the level of social revolution. Right. That the work of the revolution after gaining political power would be the immediate transformation of the productive social relations, which would then lead to a transformation of the material basis of society. This, he said, would mean that capital would be overcome without a need for a transitional period in civil society. This is the dream. The dream is that. You know, look, the dictatorship of the proletariat is... I mean, he, he did think the, the state would wither away. It would, the state would remain, right, for a while. But right. civil society would be transformed 
when the workers to yeah when the workers transform social relations no exactly exactly wrong and so a lot of people attribute this to um lenin they get into the the details of did lenin understand the critique of the gotha program or not mm-hmm. i think he did <laughs> mm-hmm. so i think it's pretty obvious you read marx and you read the lenin it's like there's no no daylight between these two perspectives whatsoever mm-hmm. now that doesn't solve the problem because Marx could have been wrong. And again, Lenin might have thought he was doing one thing, but actually doing another thing. So well, also, Andrew Kleinman thought he was mm-hmm. sticking strictly to the Gotha program critique. He didn't think he was diverging from it. Kleinman, know? yeah, but it's yeah. a lot of uh, sophistry. It's a lot of redefinition of terms. It's a lot of, like, you know, lower stage, higher stage. There's, you know, there's, there's this text, and it's pretty straightforward. But because it's a pretty short text... It's like, but what does it mean? In other words, like, even though it's very straightforward, it's kind of like, but, but, but he's not saying, he's not spelling out everything. And so there are mm. marks. And therefore, you know, even though it's clear, it's actually not clear, especially in light of historical experience. So historical mm. experience seems to have complicated things. And, you know, rightly so. But again, the point being, social, societal change historically has never occurred, ever, in the form of, people getting together and deliberating and deciding on the new course of society. That has never happened. And it's not going to happen now. And it's especially not going to happen now because we live in alienation. Right? Because capitalism, insofar as bourgeois society, did achieve a kind of self-conscious enlightenment, a certain kind of transparency and an ability to deal with reality with sober senses, to use the phrase of Marx that Andrew Kleinman loves. Mm-hmm. But capitalism regresses us back into a phantasmagoria and into a realm of fetishism, right? A realm of like, you know, basically animistic, like divine spirits and theological subtleties and metaphysical niceties, or I forget how that works. It might be uh, metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a bit, again, alienation and the phantasmagoria, right? So capitalism is a phantasmagoria, meaning it's smoke and mirrors in comparison to the kind of self-consciousness and clarity that was achieved by people like Adam Smith or Hegel, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who did actually see things as they were. In a way, capitalism denies us the ability to do that, Precisely because the only way we can grasp the society is in bourgeois terms. So, you know, an intellectual like Kleiman or like us, we might be tempted to say, we're going to figure it out now. And we're going to see things. We're going to get the theory right. We're going to clear our perspective. We're going to, the scales are going to fall from our eyes. We're going to see things as they really are. And that's going to allow us to change things in a conscious way. No. No. Not at all. Right? Okay. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Working class, you know, is sunk in commodity fetishism, but so are we as intellectuals, and maybe we're even worse than the working class is, Mm -hmm. right? And this is going to have to be worked through, and to use Hegelian language, it's going to have to be worked through through forms of misrecognition, through fetish forms. We only have fetish forms. That's the only thing that we have. And the the only thing that we have is how those fetish forms have started to manifestly contradict themselves, right? So where 
they are the way that we grasp things. They are the way that we see things, but we also see contradiction manifesting there. And Mm -hmm. so we have disputes within capitalism, within bourgeois society, in which people take opposed sides on a disintegrating set of social relations. And you have, like, again, in socialism, you have a kind of collectivistic socialism, and you have, like, the phalanstery, like, utopian socialist, where everyone's going to be organized in a phalanx, Mm -hmm. and there's going to be some kind of industrial discipline, and that's going to bring about freedom somehow. And then you have more individualistic, including, like, a Max Stirner, Mm -hmm. right? Um, or like a Proudhonian anarchism, a kind of small-scale production kind of notion. And these are, again, it's not like, oh, they're mistaken, one side is wrong or one side is right, or I'm going to come in and clear up all this confusion. As Marx put it very early on in his career, I was just teaching this last night to my Art Institute students, his famous letter to Arnold Ruga in 1843 for the ruthless critique of everything existing. He says, we can only clarify the confusion among the reformers. Mm-hmm. In other words, not clear up, but make the confusion clear that that's what it is, that it is confused. Like, you know, it was the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that you're confused. Mm-hmm. Right. And also see a real historical basis for that confusion rather than a wrongheadedness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, that brings us into the realm of politics. Meaning, how are we going to work through this confusion? We're going to work through it through politics. And that politics is not exhausted by the workers against the capitalists. It's going to be among the workers. It already is among the workers, right? Capitalist Mm -hmm. politics can't function without at least some support from the working class, passive or active, Right. So, again, how, how are we going to, you know, make this as conscious as possible while recognizing that it's also not going to be terribly clear from the outset? In other words, it's going to be a process of overcoming capitalism. That's, you know, so, so Andrew Clement say, oh, there's no transitional period. What you're saying that there's not going to be a process of overcoming capitalism, that people are not going to freely engage in a social well, process? I'll tell you what he says. He, 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 quotes, he quotes Hegel and says, you know, uh, this critique of gradualism that, that, you know, which is also expressed in reverse. It's like when, uh, at what point are you no longer, at what point does someone become bald? How many hairs do you have to remove? Yeah, quantity, you go? quality. Right, you know, and, and so for Hegel, he said there, is, there is a qualitative change that occurs that isn't simply a matter of a gradual process, but w- which happens all at once. Um, and that's that's what he well, points here's to. here's another point. We're not waiting for the contradiction of capitalism to mature. No. It's there. No, but, okay, but when it's after there. the revolution, when when we, like, and back to the critique, critique of the Gotha program, yeah. uh, the, the labor tokens, labor notes, whatever that is, idea, which, if you read carefully in the Gothic program, are not meant to be the uh, mediating uh, currency that will, you know, ensure and protect and uh, mm-hmm. create a, a long-lasting system of socialism or proletarian right. uh, power, but rather are actually set up to only kind of illustrate yes the contradictions that are already present with political intervention. Yeah, make manifest the problem right. of the value so, of labor. 
So you have you create a system which is intentionally not just designed to fail, but designed to fail in a way so that the reasons for its failure will be clear to civil society for people who are using it, right? And then that will hopefully bring forward the creative impulse to transcend that form of mediation and to create something new. So I can see that as a kind of process, but still, I don't know when I, it sounds, it reminds me of like therapy or something like, you know, like Uh psychoanalysis, you you work it through and then you do, you have a a revelation. You have a, you have a moment where something becomes lost too, which can be lost. Yeah. Which can be lost. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, again, was this mere sentimentality, you know, or kind of a nice intention that the workers themselves have to overcome capitalism? No, I don't think so. Right? (laughs) No. It's meant very literally. And so the dictatorship of the proletariat is meant to open the door to that. But the workers themselves have to do it. Right. Right? It's not like, okay, uh, once the political party establishes the dictatorship of the proletariat, then everything's in hand and clear sailing. Right. I mean, if we clear away all the complexity of, of our conversation up to now and just say, if we believe that the working class has to transform society, that's the goal of socialism, then it's clear that we can't have the state dictating to the workers, even after the revolution, some party dictating to them how they should do it. Because the state isn't the, the revolutionary subject, can't do it. Therefore, we have to free the proletariat. And I guess there's a kind of an act of faith here. There's a leap of faith to say, yeah, we kind of believe for these good theoretical reasons, we thought it through a bit, that the, this, this is the, the class in society that could a gamble. transform. What yeah. it is, this is gamble and a risk. I mean, again, the idea being that nobody masterminded social change. Nobody masterminded capitalism. Nobody masterminds capitalism today. No. Right. And um, and it's not going to be masterminded in that way. Right. Including right. by some like cyber sin, you know, like artificial intelligence or something. It's not uh, it's, it's not going to happen that way. Right. But those are so fun. Those little cyber sin rooms with the AI. I mean, they're fun as tools. Right. They can't be the subject. <laughs> right, right. Like it's just, you know, we're not going to it's just not going to happen. And so basically. The idea is, and this is going to be a controversial idea, mm-hmm. workers are already directing capitalism, however, mm-hmm. behind their own backs. Right. And, and that's, that, that's Marxism 101. Straight Marx. And not only that, check it out, the capitalists are in the same position as the workers, mm-hmm. meaning they're also only acting behind their own backs. In other words, they're not achieving their conscious intention in this system. Right. So, you know, this is the really difficult part. And again, we have to sort of earn this theoretical insight, this theoretical position. It's not like a ready-made thing, meaning today it's not immediately apparent that the capitalists are not simply in charge and the workers are not simply subject to them. Right? I spent over a decade walking through Marxist theory and to come to this understanding over and over and over again i feel like my own audience should get it by now they should but in the political realm like we're going to be compelled by the issues of the day Mm -hmm. to immediately abandon that insight right in favor of well what do we want to have happen now 
Mm-hmm. Right? right. And do you support this or that policy now? Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But that might not have anything to do with overcoming capitalism at all. Like zero at, at all. Like even the socialistic policies, you know, well, the Medicare for all, right? This kind of stuff has nothing to do with overcoming capitalism. Those are only policy disputes within capitalism. So there's a lot more questions that I haven't asked, but I think I'll just continue asking them in the second half, but we're not quite there yet. There's a, here's a big one. Um, in a recent interview with Ben Burgess, I discussed with him whether or not Cornell West should, should run as a Democrat or if it was better that he ran as an independent. And what I noticed in that conversation was that Burgess seemed to conceive of left politics in terms that you spell out in your essay. That is, uh, as an interest aggregator and pressure group on the state, advancing the interests of the working class that way. Um, the idea that it could be conceived of, as you say, was the way the first international, I think, thought of it as an inheritor party aiming to take power to be used not to change policy but to transform society. And and uh and this, I, the way I phrased it was before we talked, so from the point of production up, um, was difficult to even express, let alone discuss. Uh, how should we conceive of that inheritor party? Okay, so actually, so it's not, the, it's not merely an inheritor party. So okay. there are two different ways. I get this from um, J.P. Nettle, who was Rosa Luxemburg's biographer, and he was mm-hmm. a non-Marxist, liberal, political uh, historian and, and theorist. And um, but who thought that Marxism, the history of Marxism, actually raised all the fundamental questions about modern society and politics. Mm-hmm. And so what he's looking at is the SPD becoming the inheritor party in the sense that it took over the Prussian state. Right. So um, there's sort of, in a sense, before and after the revolution. So before the revolution, was the party just an interest aggregator for the working class? And after the revolution in 1918, the Democratic Revolution. Did it become the inheritor party? Did it simply take over the Prussian state? And he said, well, you know, really, no, it wasn't meant to be either of those things, either before or during or after the revolution. So there is meant to be, and this is really the difficult part, there's meant to be a political revolution in terms of a democratic revolution, meaning smashing the state. So smashing the state and not abolishing, but smashing and reconstituting the state um, is is a democratic revolution. So it's what happened in the American Revolution. It's what happened in the French Revolution. It's what happened in the English Civil War and the English Glorious Revolution. It's what happened in the Dutch Revolt. So there's a history of this. So democratic revolution, smashing and reconstituting the state. So that's the political revolution. That's not the social revolution. That's the political revolution. And we have only seen that done by the working class once, and that was the Russian Revolution. And yet, it immediately had to backslide, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? In other words, it did smash the czarist state. It did. Um, it did reconstitute the state, including with elements of the former state. But that would be the case here in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. In, you know, So the idea is that uh, you know, capitalism does generate conditions for the repetition of the bourgeois democratic revolution. It does. Meaning, I think there will be another revolution in the United States. Whether it leads to socialism is another question. But there will be a democratic revolution. There will be some kind of 
you know, massive transformation of the constitutional order, probably at some point. Um, you know, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe the U.S. will go the way of the United Kingdom and sort of become a kind of sideshow to, like, global capitalism and preserve its old system. Maybe. But I think probably it's not going to do that. So the the issue of what we might call inheritance, I think that maybe what I perhaps was not clear about in my essay, um, is that, of course, the dictatorship of the proletariat does inherit capitalism. In other words, it inherits the same conditions that gave us the capitalist state. Meaning, um, you know, the kind of Bonapartist capitalist state. And because of that, right, because those necessities, those historical conditions and necessities don't go away immediately. They can't be overcome at one stroke. It's going to be affected by the dictatorship of those proletariat is going to be affected by capitalism that it comes out of, and it's going to continue to be affected by capitalism, right? So that's that's the mm -hmm. point there. So I would say that the issue there, again, is because uh, you see among the Neo-Kautskians, like people around the DSA who are inspired by kind of Loisley, who I mentioned, and others like Mike McNair of the Communist Party of Great Britain, and others who have done this kind of investigation of uh, Kautsky's originally, original perspective. And they come up with democratic republicanism. That, um, because, you know, Engels and Marx said things like this, that, you know, the, the form of the state that is perfect for the class struggle is the democratic republic. And you're only really going to be able to achieve the democratic republic via the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right? So the idea is that the dictatorship of the proletariat is going to issue into a democratic republic and then that's going to create the conditions under which you, know, you could have political democracy that could then be the means by which the working class transforms society in the direction of socialism. Mm -hmm. Now, someone like Ben Burgess or others like uh, Bhaskar Sankara with Jacobin, who was also influenced by these readings of Lenin and Kautsky by Lars Lee and Mike McNair mm -hmm. back in the day, around circa 2011, mm -hmm when I wrote this thing, because I'm writing with them in mind, with that mm -hmm. audience in mind, they're like, well, wait, we kind of have a democratic republic now, and yes, it has some undemocratic features like the Senate and the Supreme Court and this and that, the Electoral College. So, you know, maybe we don't need a revolution. Maybe we don't need a political revolution. In other words, maybe we can basically just champion the interests of the working class within the existing democratic republic and that's how we're going to achieve socialism in the long run. Like a Bernstein kind of approach, a mm -hmm. Edward Bernstein kind of approach. Although they would disclaim that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think Edward Bernstein is, you know, better, more honest, clearer. And also Bernstein has, in a way that the DSA, Jacobin people don't, a very clear understanding of how the workers' own civil social organizations are an indispensable element of this. In other words, that it's not enough to have a working class political majority within democracy, but you also need the self-organized civil social action of the working class. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, uh, Kautsky could take that for granted because it, it had been built up in the late 19th and early 20th century. In other words, in the metropolitan, advanced, industrialized, capitalist countries, 
there was a well-organized working class that understood its aspirations as socialist. Mm-hmm. Even Samuel Gompers, little known fact, he was a Marxist. Oh, mm-hmm. you know that he was a Marxist? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's a socialist, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't have that now. We've got nothing like that now. Mm-hmm. You know, and what's worse is we've got socialists who are not at all Marxist and who basically have this status technocratic idea of like, you know, capitalist policy being somehow a step to socialism. Mm. Right. So we don't have a self-organized working class at a civil social level, nor do we have a socialist intelligentsia that's clear about the problem of capitalism and what are the basic criteria for what do we have to overcome in capitalism? Right. We, they've lost the sense of, you know, it's not just redistribution, mm-hmm. right? They've lost these basic points, right? Which, again, to them sound like Marxist esoterica. Well, these things have become Marxist esoterica in reality, like, in other words, at a political level. So the texts are there. We can read these things. But, again, what they mean is very unclear in a concrete sense of existing social reality today, the capitalism mm-hmm. we're living under now. Right. And, and what would that even look like? And, you know, it looks like, oh, organizing the working class in massive factories seems easy in comparison to this kind of outsourced, scattered production that's globalized. Right. Mm-hmm. How do you even organize the working class the way they did back in the day under present conditions? It's very unclear. And then they're like, well, there are still these massive Amazon warehouses and those are logistical choke points. And so strategically, nothing has changed. But no, clearly a lot has changed, right? Like corporate forms, even national state economies. You know, capitalism has always been a global system, but the way it's concretely mediated has changed, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, again, Marxism is going to appear today to be very abstract. Mm-hmm. But we can, in that abstraction, still be clear about certain principles. And so why did I say Lenin's liberalism? Because mm-hmm. you know what? From a Marxist perspective, socialism is not supposed to be anti-liberal or illiberal. It's not supposed to deny civil social rights and freedom. It's not supposed to abolish civil liberties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, again, what do we make of Lenin? Because what did the Bolsheviks do in the Russian Revolution? Well, they seem to have outlawed other parties, engaged in censorship. Yeah, you know, if you actually study this history, which I have done in great detail, Mm -hmm. back in the day, and I've returned to it at times, it wasn't as straightforward as that. In other words, the, the parties were not banned in the way that we think of it. What was... The case was you couldn't run for election unless you accepted the Soviet system of government. You can't run for election here unless you accept the constitutional form of government that we have. Right. You have to swear an oath to the Constitution. If you don't accept that, guess what? You're out. Right. That's how the parties were excluded in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And were they censored? Not so much. Not as much as we think. In other words, even though these parties were excluded from the Soviets because they excluded themselves from the Soviets, the workers' councils, Mm. they still had their publications. Mm. And the only thing that was censored was agitation, like, for overthrowing the existing government. 
like direct agitation under conditions of civil war. Right. Like, in other words, you could muse, you could write articles about, well, these Bolsheviks haven't really established the dictatorship of the proletariat, and it's not really socialism, and look at the workers, they're suffering. That wasn't banned. That wasn't censored. Not at all. Mm -hmm. What was censored was direct agitation. Like, like we should we should gather here right. with with our guns and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And and of course that's but what that changed want. though. I mean over it time. It did change. Yes, it did. And but again, if we stay in Lenin's lifetime, if we send it, stay in Lenin's time, there was a lot of repression, a lot of violence. There was. Mm-hmm. But in principle, in principle, civil liberties were never abolished. Mm-hmm. Right? And, again, what does that mean? In other words, it, because, you know, again, in capitalism, civil liberties are suspended all the time. They're right. suspended all the time, and you have to actually fight. Like, you have to fight on the street, you have to fight in court, you have to fight in, in capitalist elections to preserve the rights that we already have on paper. Right. They're there, but they... they they don't exist unless they're actually struggled for politically and socially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always like to point out the ACLU was established by the Socialist Party of America, as mm-hmm. was the, Nas- the, um, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, mm-hmm. as was, uh, well, maybe in a different way, Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. No, different sorry. socialists. Right. Um, but but ACLU, right? American Civil Liberties Union, mm-hmm. right? As a broader formation, but started by socialists to defend civil liberties, right? Mm-hmm. So again, why would they do that, right? Why would they bother doing that? Because it was understood in capitalism, we have to fight for these rights. And by the way, in bourgeois society, you also have to fight for the rights. In other words, like Thomas Jefferson understood that we've given a bill of rights and a constitution, but in fact, it's not established just by putting it on paper and ratifying it. Right. But in practice, you always have to struggle for these rights. Right. Right. And, and you know, in a revolution, every generation or so is probably necessary, he said. <laughs> right. Like, so, mm-hmm. so it's understood. Right. And so, again, you know, the idea that, oh, well, bourgeois right and civil liberties are just the right to exploit and oppress by the capitalist class, the property owners, the the privileged, the wealthy, you know, the hierarchically, you know, established through education or whatever, that that's what that is. That bourgeois right is the right of the wealthy bourgeoisie who are in a privileged position of power to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. No, that's not that's not what it is, right? Like these are actual civil social rights that didn't get declared. So the Republicans will say, you know, the rights come from God and not from government. But what do they mean by that? They mean it came from fucking somewhere. We don't know where. God. (laughs) It definitely didn't come from the government. Because, again, it had to kind of exist in society first for us to be able to, you know, codify it in law and say, you know, what are we going to respect about society in our legal, juridical, constitutional order and in our form of politics and government, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it was understood you can't take these rights away. 
The government can't take these rights away. Well, they kind of can't. What, what unfortunately is the case is that whether or not the government grants them or takes them away, they're undermined in capitalism. In other words, capitalism itself, this society itself undermines these civil social freedoms and liberties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I want to ask you a question about how your, this piece was received at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because in a way, uh, an, an essay entitled Lenin's Liberalism might be easily taken up by people who want to conceive of their project primarily in terms of reforming the existing capitalist state, maybe working within the liberal parties of capitalism, um, wherever they might be in, whatever, you know, what, in whichever country they're in. So in the United States, liberal, Lenin's liberalism might be seen as like, Lenin would be a Democrat, you know, right. something like that, you know, right? Right, right. Um, so how was it understood at the time, and uh, was it controversial at the time? It is controversial. Yeah, it was controversial. It remains controversial. And I think that that's the way people understood it. In other words, they understood, um, you know, there's kind of two, two ways of thinking about liberalism. There's mm-hmm. like classical liberalism, or we might say a liberal attitude towards society and politics. Mm-hmm. And then there's liberalism. There's like a kind of um, reification of that, right? Or kind of a, a, a formal... Like, it's really uh, progressivism, isn't it, that they're talking about? Well, when people say liberalism now, they mean progressive liberalism as opposed to conservative liberalism. So in the United mm-hmm. States, we have two. We have the Democrats are progressive liberals and the Republicans are conservative liberals, meaning they, the... <clears throat> Republicans basically are not so fast, right? It used to be the other way. So the Republicans were the progressive liberals before FDR, and the Democrats were conservative liberals. The conservatives were like, rights for black people, not so fast, Mm. right? And then it flipped with FDR. And FDR was actually a crypto Republican, you know. He's from another side of the family as Theodore Roosevelt, who was a progressive Republican. Um, And so you had a flipping in the system. So... However you think about it, and progressives also like um, La Follette in the 1920s was a Republican, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Progressive liberals, in other words, people who want to reform capitalism in a progressive way, in a socially progressive way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, again, from a Marxist perspective, that's all well and good. That intention is all well and good. But Marxism is aware of the fact that that's going to come to grief. In other words, it might work for a little while, but it's not going to work in the long run. And it's actually going to not solve the problem, but deepen it, deflect it, maybe obscure it. Mm. And so, you know, really the issue is politics. In other words, I think that I've mentioned on previous discussions that, you know, like my practical perspective politically would be seen as kind of anarchist Right, mm-hmm. because it would prioritize civil social action independent of the state and law and politics. Mm-hmm. Now, Marx argued for that the working class had to participate in both civil and social action and political action. So again, mm-hmm. what is political action? Political action would be something like the ACLU challenging laws in court mm-hmm. and even electing representatives who might vote on laws along such lines even though they probably will end up voting against most measures, 
you know, they'd be like a Rand Paul, mm-hmm. you know, someone who votes no on most things, but occasionally votes yes for something if it's in defense of rights or something. Mm-hmm. So political action existing in the political sphere, um, you know, especially insofar as the working class does grow up into a force in society, is actually mm-hmm. an organized civil social force, then it's going to have to claim more and more political rights. It's going to have to, you know, fight that battle in the political arena. We're not there now. We're not there now. In other words, we're just uh, passive victims of whatever the progressive liberals decide to grant us, mm-hmm. right? Um, or or not grant us or whatever, right? And we're going to basically screw our heads into rationalizing whatever's on offer and be like, oh, yeah, that must be progressive. <laughs> they say so, and so it must be or something, right? And it's like, uh, right? And we're going to ignore, like, the working class and how they're actually living and how they're actually exercising their civil social freedom on the ground. How they're voting with their feet, voting mm-hmm. with their feet, including, like, moving, you know, moving from state to state, moving from country to country, right? Um, dropping out of the workforce, changing jobs, right? Like, that. that is social reality that is creating the conditions for capitalism far more than the law is actually Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so again i think that people get confused over what political action means and also what its purpose is so ultimately political action is political revolution and establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat But in the meantime, it might also mean struggling in the political arena, in the capitalist political arena, in some limited way, but as actually necessitated by the movement. And again, there is no movement. There is no proletarian socialist movement. There's no self-organized movement of the working class for socialism. There was... No, not for socialism, no. There is a self-organized working class movement. They come and go. There's a labor movement, which is a little bit different. There's like yeah, union but also I'm thinking like the truckers convoy. Oh that sure, was political. There that are was protests. A... There are protests. Yeah. there are. And um, again, we think of these things in very desiccated and impoverished ways. Meaning, you know, I'm a Frankfurt School person. The administered society after mm-hmm. World War II. Basically, what happened was politics got reduced to protests. The new left, right? So free speech movement, civil rights movement, it was like a protest movement. And, you know, now something like the civil rights movement actually had more substance to it than just registering a protest, obviously. Um, And it was connected to the labor movement, which is not accidental, but, and also was crucial in its success. But nonetheless, like we can say, well, the labor movement, you know, um, has been uh, basically uh, a seat at the bargaining table. You know, Taft-Hartley Act, you know, it's been domesticated. It's been reined in. And not just in the United States, but everywhere in the world. And that's why you got in the late 60s and the early 70s, like, wildcat strikes, workers striking against the decision of their unions. Mm-hmm. That's, the that was May 68. Right. Mm-hmm. And May 68, Absolutely. For sure, right, and mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, in in a kind of a in a most dramatic and crystallized way, mm-hmm. and so you know, again, 
nowadays things are a lot more inchoate and that's why we have the specter of like populism because it looks like oh well who's protesting who's demonstrating who's rising up are they really workers or are they petty bourgeois or whatever are truckers workers well don't they own their own rigs but no they don't really own them the bank owns them they just own the debt to them <laughs> in which case they are kind of workers or but what kind of workers they're not like an industrial proletariat they're not working collectively they're working individually blah right <laughs> and you get into all that stuff and it's like well look at a very basic level you have democratic protests in other words you have protests by the people the demos against the policies of the state Right. And, you know, so that's why I would not say workers' civil social action, because it's kind of not as such. Right, okay. It's not as such, right? And again, what the old Marxism had as an advantage um, that we lack is that, like, long before Marx came on the scene, there was a workers' movement that did understand itself as a workers' movement, and even as a socialist movement. That existed. And it existed all the way up into the 20th century. But then it got divided. And I guess we can talk about this in the second half. Namely, yeah. the, crisis, the crisis of Marxism, mm -hmm. which is not just a crisis of Marxism, but really a crisis of the socialist movement. And a crisis of the workers' movement. Not only the workers' movement for socialism, but the workers' movement more generally. Yep. Um, that's great. So that's what we'll talk about in the second half. People should definitely sign up to the Patreon and, and watch the second half because I think this is going to be the meat. We haven't, it's, all of it's been meat, but this is going to be very important. I have some questions about the crisis in Marxism, um, and uh, I'm going to end it here for now, but uh, we'll see you on the other side. If you enjoyed this conversation please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>